Blog Talk Radio. August 9th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Her philosophy is the unique philosophy behind the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome everyone who's joining me live over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. Typically, people are refreshing at the top of the hour, so we might see some more people show up. Lots of stuff happened since I spoke with you last. If you go over to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see the title of today's show. We are going to talk about a bunch of news, but I have quite a bit of housekeeping before we jump into the news. But the title, news-based title for today is Climate Change in North Korea and Immigrants. Oh my. I, I was going to originally say climate change in North Korea and gender differences. Oh my, because gender differences are also in the news thanks to Google or Gulag, as some people are perhaps appropriately calling the search engine giant this week. Uh, but I decided to go for immigrants, A, because I spoke about immigration that controversial subject that loses you friends, makes you all sorts of enemies. I got to speak about that on national TV this past Sunday, thanks to Steve Hilton for inviting me on his show and deciding in the A block, my very first time ever speaking in that format on television, he decided in the A block to discuss immigration. In a way, it's it was fortunate because it's something that I've talked about a lot on this show, so I knew what I thought about it. But also, it's something that I know, you know, I had a really controversial view about. Of course, I disagreed to some extent with everybody who was there on the panel with me and, and also with Steve Hilton himself. So right off the bat, I was put in this position. It, it, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was, it was a good exchange between me and Steve. You can check it out. I've got that in the program notes. Fox happened to excerpt it as the thing that they quoted and and tweeted and and put a little video clip for that is the only official legal video clip that I have from the appearance you might be able to find bootlegs of the rest of the show elsewhere there are some other topics that we discussed we discussed Apple you know and its decision to remove from the app store those VPN apps that were helping the Chinese evade the censorship in China. So that was one topic. Another topic was this Congressman Delaney, who's announced his candidacy for 2020 already. And in particular, I focused in my 
response to him to the idea of including broadband internet access under the idea of infrastructure. Everybody thinks infrastructure, big infrastructure projects are going to save the economy. It's going to make America great if we, quote, invest, i.e. steal from some and throw into a government program, invest in infrastructure. But I spoke with Steve about as, because you know, he calls himself a populist. As, you know, as a populist, you should be concerned about big brother or big sister, depending on who's going to be next, taking over broadband, right? This is the vehicle by which we all actually have our voices heard. If you're a populist, you'd think you'd want to have the voices heard as much as possible and not be censored by big brother, big sister. You know, there's no better way to proliferate the swamp than by giving control of the vehicle for political speech, giving control of that to the elite, as he might call them. Uh, I also questioned in my final comments what he included under the elite. If you actually go and see one of the very first videos that he puts out, you know, there's a collection of videos that they've co- that they put out for the show itself. So if you go to the show's page on Fox, one of the first videos he puts out, it's some, it's titled something like the difference that populism can make or positive populism, as he calls it, I think the difference that populism can make. And in that video, he talks about the elite and he includes the rich and he doesn't differentiate the rich, right? You and I, I assume people who listen to this show, we would make a strong differentiation between the people who get rich due to cronyism, due to exerting their influence in Washington, a.k.a. trying to control where the government gun is pointed next. There's a difference between people who get rich that way and people who get rich through innovation and honest hard work. And so in my closing comments, which had to be cut off because of the format and how far behind he had gotten in the during the show, in those comments I try to encourage people to consider not having under the elite the people who truly did make America great, which were these innovators, entrepreneurs, filthy rich people. Yes, filthy rich people help to make America great. As long as they're not getting rich by violating the rights of others, by trying to get government to violate the rights of others on their behalf or on behalf of the so-called public interest, then we need to not include them in the elite that we're having this revolution, as he calls it, against. And uh, I, by the end of the show, I think he was kind of annoyed with me, unfortunately. Um, that was the impression that I was getting. And I noticed if you go onto the Next Revolution's own Twitter feed, that they chose to send out, you know, under theirs, like, you know, Fox tweeted out this thing that you can see in the program notes. Fox chose to do that. It was the, you know, the main Fox News Twitter account that did that. If you go to the Next Revolution's own show feed, they chose to send out additional tweets from my co-panelists, but not from me, right? Um, I don't think they were that happy with what I had to say. I think they were a little bit surprised because after all, what was I as they saw me on Tucker? I was the atheist feminist. I think they thought I was some kind of liberal. And then it turns out, you know, he asked me at the beginning, I said, you'd probably call me some kind of libertarian. And I think he was already a little concerned probably by then. And then I think after my comments on immigration, 
he, he probably didn't like me very much. I, you know, it's okay if he doesn't like me, but everybody would like to be able to do two things. You'd want to be able to speak your mind, whatever it is. And mine, you know, in, in that, some people called it lion's den, but in that environment, I think everything I say is fairly controversial to anybody who's present. And then you want to be able to do that and then also have people still like you. I thought Tucker ended up liking me. It was really kind of cool, the rapport that we had. And I was hoping that even though I knew I was going to disagree with Hilton, that it would be that same way. But he did seem kind of annoyed with me afterwards. I haven't heard anything more from them. I'm suspecting I won't. Who knows? Freedom Breeze in the chat room. She's saying, atheist, feminist, individualist. Whoa. I wouldn't use the feminist label unless I had a lot of time to explain the way in which I would see myself as a feminist or, you know, what I would, if you're, we have a discussion about whether that term feminist should be used or not, whether it's something that could be salvaged from the leftists, because the leftists under the umbrella of feminists, they'll put the requirement that we violate rights to favor women. So for instance, some sort of affirmative action quotas or things that Google right, says that they were doing. Um, yeah, Luca Burton in the chat room, he's got a some sort of a bootleg link that you can watch it. Uh, yeah, um, yeah uh, Freedom Breeze says, yes, if you're an individual, if you're not a member of any collective, there is, of course, a valid way to spend your time in today's world, which would be promoting the interests of women in various ways. Now, when you promote the interests of women, would go out there and protest against any rights violations that are taking place against women. And there are places around the world that are treating women horribly. You know, I just, there was a story a couple weeks ago, someplace in Pakistan, there was some guy who raped the daughter of some family, you know, a woman, but raped a woman. And the retaliation is, for there to be a rape of that guy, the one who was the original rape perpetrator, they're going to rape his sister or something. And that's supposed to be the punishment. This goes on today, 21st century in Pakistan. Pakistan supposedly some kind of ally of ours. These guys are savages. Okay, so this is going on somewhere in the world. So if you want to protest against that, and maybe you also want to spend some time talking about the treatment of women in general, the unfair treatment of women in general. And that still goes on in some places in the United States as well. And there are some sexist scumbag men out there. And if you want to talk about those things, that's fine too. And you're not talking, if you're doing this, you're not saying, oh, I think we should violate the rights of employers or, you know, anything else in order to promote better treatment of women. No, you don't have to do that. You can just point out where mistreatment of women still exists, where rights violations of women still exist. And that could be a valid pursuit. And suppose I wanted to spend all my time doing that. Would I call myself a feminist? Would I call myself something else? Can I rescue that word feminism? Or is feminism automatically a package deal that puts me in and, you know, with people who promote Immoral things. That's really the question. We're talking about gay rights and everything else. The gay left does the same thing. 
And Chris in the chat room, he says, I always find myself qualifying. I'm for individual rights, not gay rights. Right. And, and all I talked about during the show when I was on with Steve Hilton was individual rights. And they did not label me as a feminist. They labeled me as I asked, which was just as a talk show host. Imagine that, just a talk show host, not any particular atheist I'm happy to have, although I don't wear atheism as a banner. I've jokingly put out on some social media, I put in paren, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm an atheist. But it's nothing that I've ever just gone out there and promoted by itself. It's not what you're against. I'm, you know, an atheist. I'm not atheist. Okay, fine. What are you? What are you for? And that's what I spend most of my time talking about. But I was very happy to have that opportunity to go on Tucker and talk about that study because that study was accusing those of us who are atheists of being closed-minded out of the gate. So that was a great, great opportunity. I'm hoping to have more similar opportunities. I've sent some pitches out on Monday to some people, and this gets into the other thing that I did over the weekend last time that I saw you. I went to a masterclass, what they call a masterclass in podcasting, that was hosted by Adam Carolla. It happened to be in Irvine. And that was easy for me to get to. So it seemed really like a shame if I'm interested in podcasting and I would like to monetize and they're going to talk about all this not to go. I was thinking, well, I'd rather have more time to obsess about my Sunday TV appearance and not feel so crammed up with activities. But I think it turned out to be good because it was a good distraction for me. And I learned quite a bit. Adam is so funny. He's got a really vulgar sense of humor, but he's he's really quite funny. If you go on my Instagram You'll see a picture of me with Adam Carolla right after that event happened. He was, you know, with some of us taking pictures and stuff. So that was kind of cool. If you go on his Instagram, it turns out that you'll see the back of my head in photos there because I happened, I was right up in the front. It just turned out and I wasn't really trying to get up in the front, but I figured once I was there and that seat was available, I might as well take it. So I took it and sat there and ended up with the back of my head. On his Instagram, you can see my my pewter hair, as I as I call it. But what did I learn from him, and what sort of announcement do I have about the future of this show as a result? Uh, there are a couple things that he suggested for people who want to do radio show hosting, podcasting, any of us who like to talk and hope to have an audience doing so. One thing they said is that I should take an improv class, an improv comedy class. That could be fun to do. Sometimes I like to crack jokes, but maybe I could be a lot better at it. We could all improve. So that would be perhaps something I'm going to think about doing. If you guys have suggestions about who gives an improv comedy class that I could benefit from, go ahead and send those in. I would love to see because that's something I'm thinking about doing. And then, you know, actually there's a, there's a masterclass, a video, you know, video recorded masterclass from Steve Martin. Maybe I'll just go ahead and watch that. That could be fun. I was looking at that anyway. I thought it could be a kick to do. So if Corolla is saying that this is actually part of my job is to learn this, then maybe I should do that. Another thing that he talked about was making sure if I have a guest on or a co-host with me for a particular day or something, that I actually listen carefully to what the person was saying. And they gave some rather humorous examples of hosts who don't really listen to the guests. Sometimes I think Hilton actually just, it's not that he didn't like me, but maybe he wasn't even able to listen to me because he, his format, 
Hilton's format makes it so I think he probably always feels rushed and he always has to think about the next transition to the next thing and get to the next guest. And then, you know, and I have that as well. If I have somebody on that I'm interviewing and I have a list of questions and I have things I want to get to make sure that I cover this topic or that topic, tempting to not fully listen to the person to whom you're speaking. And they gave a very humorous example, and I can't remember the con- the actual person that they were talking about, but it was, you know, they're talking about so-and-so, and then one of the people on the panel says, oh, yeah, I slept with so-and-so. And then the host just goes to break and doesn't really acknowledge it and didn't even hear it, apparently. And, of course, the whole audience is going, oh, my God, I'm dying. I want to hear this story about, you know, how that panelist slept with so-and-so. And they come back from the break and they don't even acknowledge it and they don't even talk about it. And so what they were saying is you've got to listen and you have to listen from the point of view of the audience. What would the audience want to know based on what your guest is saying? You can't do any of this stuff perfectly. I try to read the chat room here at Block Talk Radio and certainly I can't do all of this perfectly. There's things I skip. There's things that I can't get the context of the whole conversation, but you do, you try to do the best you can with this. So that was another tip that they gave. And then the big thing and the thing that has to do with the announcement that I'm going to make is hearing Adam's story. And in particular that when he was basically let go from radio because radio has been downsizing for Years He was let go from radio and then he started doing podcasting. He podcasted five days a week for an entire year without making any money. That's what he did. He did five days a week for an entire year. Didn't see any return from that. And then after that, he started with advertising revenue and everything else. And this is several years ago that he, that he started now, he didn't say that people like me who go one day a week, and I'm really consistent every so often I take a week off, you know, I took one week off for a vacation, I take a week off if I had a surgery or something, that's okay, but he, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't say that it was bad, but he says if you only brought, you know, podcast two times a month, you can't expect to build any momentum. Still, I was very inspired by the fact that he did that. And, of course, his success is insanely inspiring. And so what I think I'm going to do is, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to say think. I'm going to do it. September, I'm going to start going three days a week. I can do three days a week with everything else that I'm trying to keep going at the same time in my life. And so what you'll see is I'll be here Monday, Wednesday, Friday, starting in September. And at the same time, I'm going to be – Either what I'm what I would love to do is get on the platform that Corolla is on podcast one, because it does seem like they really have their, you know, what together in terms of metrics, the metrics are really accurate and a system by which they're selling to advertisers and things like that. If I could get on their platform and I've made a pitch to do so, that would be fabulous. But even if I can't do that, blog talk itself is opening different avenues by which I can generate revenue from the show. And of course it would be small at first point being, if I really want to make this a success and now the, you know, the little boost in attention that I've gotten from the television appearances is doing that. I'm really hoping that will continue that Fox doesn't think I'm too intense or 
too politically incorrect or whatever for them because I am. I'm just kind of this sui generis type. You know, they, they used to have a lot of Jonathan Honig, and Honig, of course, says a lot of the same things that I do. They might find me too hot to handle and not really want me back. I really hope they want me back. I really love talking with Tucker. I like talking with Steve Hilton, too. I'm perfectly happy to make friends with him and have nice exchanges with him. In fact, I said, come on my show and we can have a longer conversation. He didn't bite with that. So, you know, I want to have this exchange with them. I'm, I want to continue that. I'll go there. I'll continue to do my preparation and try to have a good amicable conversation arguing about ideas. I, lo- I love to do it. So I'm going to try to continue this trend. And what I realized with the podcasting is that if I want to succeed at this, I've got to put more skin in the game. That's really what I need to do. Uh, Rob Smith in the chat room says that podcast one is the way to go. And it would be a really great way to go. The question is, could I get on and and be somebody that they would start promoting? Would they really want that? Do they want to be associated with somebody who's in effect, a card carrying objectivist, even though, you know, when I've gone on the TV appearance, and this is something that you might see me do guys, when I sort of relaunch the show as a three day a week show in September, I might redo the intro and not just throw the name Ayn Rand out there right at the beginning, not because, I'm ceasing to be an objectivist in any way, shape, or form. It just so happens that out there in the culture right now, there are a lot of people who don't understand what Ayn Rand actually stands for. They have been taken in by the people who like to smear her and misrepresent her, either because they have read her and they feel threatened, or because they're just mindlessly parroting the criticisms that were originated from people who have never read her. And, you know, they take something out of context and everything else. I'll just I'll give you one example. There was a very nice man who was a colleague of mine when I was teaching at University of Texas, Austin, which I did for a year, thanks to Tara Smith, who graciously um, invited me there and let me be there for a year with her. Uh, and I went out to lunch with him one day, you know, one of the faculty, and I don't want to call him out, you know, because he actually said a nice thing about me and and heaven forbid, right, that you say a nice thing about somebody controversial like me. But I go out to lunch and this guy had also met another objectivist who had guest lectured there, you know, had come there for a year as well. And he says, you know, when you hear about Ayn Rand and you think of what an objectivist must be, you know, you think that they just must be horrible. I don't know if he said the thing that a lot of people say, you know, oh, we must eat babies for breakfast and everything else. And he says, you know, I I talked to you and, and, you know, here we are. And he's, you're nice. (laughs) You're actually a nice person. Like, how is it possible that you could be a follower of Ayn Rand's philosophy and you could be a nice person? And I offered him the following just hypothesis, if you think about it, which is that, as objectivists, as objectivists, we don't believe that we are beholden to our fellow human being, right? We don't believe, and th- you know, this is depending on how well you've integrated objectivism or were you brought up in a religious household. If you were brought up in a deeply religious household, you might still have internalized and, uh, you know, in part of your automatic emotional response, this idea that you're beholden to other people. But as objectivists, we don't feel 
this moral duty to our fellow man. We think if we are going to do something to help our fellow man, that it's just out of benevolence, that we share an affinity as a fellow human being, and you give people the benefit of the doubt if you don't know anything about about them, and you'll be willing to do nice things for them if it's, if it's not a sacrifice. And why not just be pleasant to your fellow man? Maybe that's why he has found objectivists to be surprisingly friendly and, and easy to socialize with. But he was truly surprised based on what he had heard. And this was an honest and thoughtful and really smart man. So if that exists, I figure, okay, I'll just go out there and be me. I could talk about I'm a capitalist. I'm an individualist. I'm for rational egoism. I can give some content, but not necessarily throw Ayn Rand's name out at the very intro of my show where somebody's going to listen and go, oh, Ayn Rand, I'm just going to turn that off, right? I'll try that and see if it helps, if people can just get a sense of who I am and how I apply ideas to the things that they are concerned with. They can get a sense of me, my personality and everything else and maybe decide that they like me and they will hear me quote from Ayn Rand or from Leonard Peikoff as part of what I do on the show. So there's that. Um, Now, what are we talking about here? Oh, in uh, Ken in the chat room, he says, for not beholden to others, sometimes they hear antisocial. For selfish, they hear entirely lacking in compassion. Yeah, I remember there was a video and it was, I believe, Bill Whittle and Andrew Clavin going back and forth about how, how is it that an objectivist could actually help somebody who was lying in the street or something? And I mean, damn, I'm driving down the street in my neighborhood and if I see that somebody's dogs are like loose out on the street, I'm driving, I'm on my way somewhere. As long as I'm not, you know, running super late for something that's very important, I have done this. I have just stopped and gotten out and tried to find where these dogs were from so that you could get them back in their yards so they don't get hit. Why? Because I don't want to see some dogs splatted in the concrete because these are living creatures and they're cute. I, I, I just don't get these people, right? I just don't get these people. Um, Luca in the chat room says, this is how Alex Epstein does it too. You don't put Ayn Rand first, but you hint to her if need be. Yeah, hint her. I'm fine to directly cite her. I am a stickler about giving credit where credit is due, given the limitations of the context. So, you know, when I'm going to go on a show with Steve Hilton, I'm not necessarily going to put Ayn Rand's name in anything that I say on the show, but it's, it's not because I'm avoiding it. It's because I would have to shoehorn it in and use precious airtime. People can look me up. You can see the about on my blog and my entire blog is named after an essay of Ayn Rand that I quote in the about portion of my blog. You can find it. I'm not hiding. I wear a dollar sign necklace. It's there on the TV. Most people realize that that's a symbol from Atlas Shrugged. I am a card carrying objectivist, no doubt, but do I need to, throw that in people's face. And and moreover, that's not all I'm about. And there are a number of objectivists who disagree with me about a number of issues, and they don't want to be saddled with whatever it is that I say, simply because they also call themselves objectivists. So all of that being said, I'm going to make maybe some changes before I ramp up three days a week, starting in September, putting more skin in the game, which is what I believe I have to do if you look at what Adam Carolla has done that has made him so successful. Consistent delivery of good content. 
and then also work on the revenue generating side. So if people have ideas on how they can help, one thing I might do, I'm not totally committed to this one, so I'll put it in the category of might, but I, I think I'm probably going to do it, is set up a Patreon site. That is one way that if people want to help me along this journey that they'll be able to. Of course, you can donate now. I've got a donate link at my blog at don'tletitgo.com through PayPal. But if you'd rather do it Patreon style and you'd like to see if I come up with some cool bonuses for patrons over there, I will go ahead and do what I can. Okay, so that being said, that's a lot of housekeeping, right? I think that's all the housekeeping that I've got for now. Uh, Oh, one more thing. They talked about having guests, trying to have guests on your show. And I pitched, you know, Adam Carolla, come on as a guest on my show. One thing I'd like to do is have some of these people. Maybe I'm going to ask Ben Shapiro. I hope he'd like to come on my show, Carolla. And I decided what it is I would like to talk to these people about. Maybe Dave Rubin as well. Here, here it is. You know that my blog, it's called Don't Let It Go. This show is called Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's all a spinoff on this idea of the American sense of life that has kept us from sliding into dictatorship for decades, maybe a century or more when this has been threatened. One thing I try to do in my show is make the American sense of life, the ideas behind it, make those ideas explicit. And I do think it's Ayn Rand's philosophy, and we need to make that explicitly known out there in in the culture and how it applies to different issues. Just educate people about the ideas behind it, but also keep alive the American sense of life and keep the American sense of life also alive in myself. What could I talk about with some of these, you know, other talk show hosts and everything out there? Adam Carolla, for example, he's got decades of experience connecting with the culture, talking to people through the medium of talk radio and and podcasting. And I'd like to ask him, if I go through that essay, Don't Let It Go, and I talk about the various aspects of what Rand calls the American sense of life and what other people might call the spirit behind American exceptionalism, I think that's a way to bring what you know, Rand meant by the American sense of life to kind of bring that home to people who don't really know her terminology or her ideas. If you think of what is the spirit behind American exceptionalism? What is the attitude that Americans have? What do they believe is exceptional about us as Americans? I think there's a lot of overlap between the healthier Americans and what Ayn Rand meant by American sense of life. I think they would recognize the aspects that she discussed in in the essay don't let it go and by the way that's in the book philosophy who needs it for people who want to go look it up it's called don't let it go and it it is the american sense of life so what i want to ask carola right or ruben or shapiro or anybody else in that field who i could get on this show levin god if i could get levin right um milo i'd love to talk to milo about a bunch of things but it'd be fun to talk to him about this too what is their sense of the state of health of the American sense of life to, you know, for a lack of a better phrase, do they think that the attitudes that comprise the American sense of life, that those attitudes are alive and well in United States today, or are they in jeopardy or are they extinct? I think they're, you know, as evidenced by Trump 
being elected that a lot of the American sense of life is quite warped. So, oh gosh, they're talking about my nose ring here in the chat room. <laughs> uh, Freedom Breeze is saying the nose ring could be a misleading symbol of libertarianism and anything goes sense of life. Um, you know, there's a lot of controversy around adornment of any kind, you know, any kind of weird jewelry or tattoos or anything else. And, you know, there's a whole lot of psychology that's involved potentially with it as well. But remember that pierced earrings, which are very, very common now, were once thought of to be pretty outrageous. Uh, In fact, you know, my grandmother, most of, I don't think she ever pierced her ears. I think my grandmother never pierced her ears and all of her collection was those little funny screw on things. I don't even know if people are old enough to remember those. Pierced ears were thought to be really radical. Now, the nose ring is more accepted than when I first had it. And by the way, those of you who think, oh, my God, she got the nose ring because she was just copying after Katy Perry. It's just not true. I had the nose ring over 20 years ago, so I just put it back in. And it's more accepted today. I see people who have all sorts of appearances with nose rings. A lot of them just have the tiny little stud. They don't have the ring itself, so they have this tiny little and a nose piercing, but it is way more accepted among all different walks of life today than it was when I first did it 20 years ago. And I think it's going to be more accepted. The thing that kind of differentiates where I go and where I wouldn't go now is, first of all, is, is it an attractive adornment? And I actually think this is kind of cool looking. You may, you might disagree and people can disagree about such things, but I think it's kind of cool looking. Um, debating about whether I got to go a little bit smaller. There's this trend right now with nose rings where you have one that just like, you know, hugs the contour of your nostril as close as possible. And you have to choose the size really carefully to make sure then you're not either like pulling on it, you know, that it's not pulling in any way or it's not squishing your nose weird or whatever. So I might be able to go a tiny bit smaller and I'm thinking about that, but otherwise I just, I like it. I like the look of it. So do I like the look of it? And then the other thing is, is it permanently, you know, drastically distorting some feature of your body? So for example, I see mostly guys where they'll put those huge circular things like in their earlobes and permanently stretch out their earlobe. And so, you know, and you can see through the hole. So the whole idea is there's this big hole that you can see through their earlobe. Ooh, to me, that's just too much. Um, it, It just goes beyond. And it's also this permanent thing that you can't really undo. You have to be super careful when you do something permanent that you can't undo. Um, and that, I guess you'd have to have some kind of plastic surgery to sew your earlobe back together or something. It would never be the same. Um, no tattoos that look like bruises. You know, the one that I have, and it's out there on Instagram, it's all for public consumption. If you look at it from certain angles and certain light, that tattoo that I have of my little dog doing agility, it does. It looks like a bruise. Sorry, Gail. Um, so maybe that's you'll tell me that's something I shouldn't have done. But at the time in my life when I did it, it was something that was 
extremely important to me and it it's got a multiple of meanings and all kinds of stuff that at some point I nah, I probably won't talk about it. <laughs> Ken says I find the stud has less psychological baggage than the ring. I don't know. I've always preferred the ring aesthetically. What I haven't liked is the ring where you've got um like through the um the septum in the middle. Those ones I'm I'm not too thrilled with. But to me it's it's also a matter of aesthetics. Lip plate liberation, says Craig. Stretch your lip out, right? Stretch your lip out. Okay. So um Point being, how do we get on this? Oh, because I went back to the chat room after this. Yeah, I'm going to try to have some guests, and I want to talk to them about the American Sons of Life, whether it's alive and well. Let's go back over to the program notes. That was a lot of housekeeping, over 30 minutes worth. Let's go over to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. You'll see I'm going to do things a little out of order. Immigration. Wow, I've gotten quite a bit of blowback on immigration. If you watch the clip, and I watched it, I think I watched it only once. Yeah, maybe I watched it only once. It's hard for me to watch myself on TV. And that was the very first segment that I had done in this format. So I was a little bit nervous and I had my eyes kind of wider probably than they should have been. That That's all nerves. But overall, the exchange, the content of the exchange, I thought with, with Hilton was, was quite good. And we did have back and forth in that segment, which was which was nice. But they had the pull quote. The pull quote is awesome that Fox chose. We do not have the right to be free from competition when we are looking for a job. And the blowback that I got on Twitter was amazing. Now Hilton did ask me, he says, so you're for open immigration. And I said, no, we're going to go ahead and have restrictions. So long as those restrictions are made with reference to the concept of individual rights. And then I listed out, you know, the dangerous diseases, somebody who has a criminal record that shows that they're dangerous to us or, enemies in time of war, terrorists, I think I said terrorists explicitly, those are all very loaded. And how do you apply that in different contexts and stuff? I was misinterpreted yet again, because some guy who's been harassing me on Facebook forever has decided that I um, am in favor of bringing like those Pakistani savages here to United States and allowing them to immigrate. The Pakistani savages who vote for raping some guy's sister as retaliation because he raped somebody else. Those people would be excluded because they are actively engaged in rights violations that contradict what we're doing here. Exactly what sort of Sharia supporter is going to be excluded under that? We can have a discussion about which ones, but clearly there's going to be a bunch of Sharia supporters, especially those who are actively working to institute Sharia in Western countries around the world. No, I would not bring them in, but you cannot simply exclude people because they have ideas in their head. And that's what I meant by culture, even if you think distasteful culture. So we need to draw a line between people who pose threats to individual rights, which the country should keep out in accordance with its founding principle versus keeping people out because you don't like the competition or you don't like the ideas that are merely in their head not being acted upon. You know, in criminal law, we don't have government do anything on the basis of ideas that aren't acted upon. If you are engaged in a conspiracy, for example, in the criminal law, there has to be some outward action in furtherance of the criminal conspiracy before you exclude somebody. 
We've got to do these things with reference to the principle of individual rights or else what in the world are we as United States? Um, If you're going to have government, and I'm still a proponent of having government, I'm not an anarchist. I think some people on Twitter think I'm some kind of anarchist. I'm not an anarchist, but when we're going to have government acting, it has to act in accordance with the principle of individual rights. So I've gotten all sorts of blowback on Twitter. I even got one guy who was threatening, saying that I uh, should die. I should just die because I think that we don't have a right to be free from competition when we're looking for a job. Yeah, I should just die. And, of course, I'm a horrible liberal and a fascist because I've said these things as well. There were a couple people who committed egregious typos or just very funny typos in their criticisms of me. And so I couldn't resist reacting to those. And some people say, okay, this is not the best way to engage them, but it's just really funny. For example, when someone, this a la Gatter, whoever he is, I don't know who it is, um, sends me some tweet complaining about the failure of immigrants to learn English properly. And that person ends up having a typo about, our country and they spell it a-r-e our country a-r-e so what do you do you respond you put oh you are this person unlike the other one there's another person who had a typo and i called it out and that person kind of came back and was sort of sheepish about it and said oh yeah boy you know haha i'm so smart and everything and actually committed a second typo in the first response to me and then came back and laughed at himself again so okay give that guy a pass but this one came back and said also, as you can see in the program notes, also the wealthier Dems leftists want to use low price labor, prey upon them. Sad example. They are hired in the billion industry, taking jobs from A-M-E-R in all caps. They're taking jobs from Americans, right? What's the answer to this person? I put it there. Why is someone like him for violating the rights of American employers? And by that, I mean telling American employers that they are not able to hire somebody that they want to hire who's from overseas. If you tell an employer that he may not, he or she may not hire the person who he wants to hire simply because that person is an immigrant, not because that person actually poses a risk of physical harm to Americans, but because that person just happens to come from another country, then you are violating the right of that employer. So throw it out to the people. Throw it out to these Trumpists, right? Why are you for violating the rights of American employers? You know, America first. What about American employers? Don't you want American employers to succeed? Because that's what we're talking about. You're talking about restricting the right of American employers to hire whom they want and restricting that not on the basis of the principle of individual rights, not because the people that they want to hire pose a risk. I'm for keeping those people out. If you can show me a demonstrable risk of physical harm from a person who wants to immigrate to this country, sure. Let's talk about keeping that person out. Let's talk about the objective means for screening these people. Let's do it. But if it's not a risk, a provable risk of physical harm, then you have no business telling these American employers how they can hire. How do you think America is going to be great again if you violate the rights of American employers? Do you think that by violating the rights of American employers, you're going to make the economy better? 
the New York Times seems to live in that delusion because the New York Times said something, uh, and I'll, we'll talk about North Korea in a bit, the North Korean economy is doing surprisingly well. How in the world can a completely government-controlled economy really be doing well? We're talking fudge numbers there. When you violate the rights of somebody, you will prevent them from being as productive as they can be. If you take an American employer and you tell him, sorry, you can't hire the guy you want to. You have to hire somebody else. You have to hire somebody from the USA. Then the employer is not going to be as productive. You're not allowing him to hire the person that he thinks will provide the most value, allow him to make the most profit. Because what is he going to do with his profit? He's going to spend it. He's going to reinvest it. He's going to leave it to his kids who are going to spend it or invest it or blow it. But still, it's, you know, it's out there. He can make more money and therefore spend more money if you allow him to make the choices that he thinks are in his own best interest. Allow him to act on his own judgment because that's the only way that human beings produce values and sustain their lives by using our, our reason, our rational faculty, by acting on our own judgment. It's the only way that we can produce value. And if we don't produce value, we die. That's our nature. We have to act in accordance with our nature. That's it. So why, you, you know, Trump, you're for making America great. You're for making America great at the expense of employers. What I think that, and, and this guy has never come back and answered me, by the way. He was answering me before, coming back with this second thing. I guess he didn't get my first criticism or decided to ignore it. Uh, comes back with this thing about, you know, the employers and they're taking jobs from Americans. Doesn't answer this. What that reveals to me is that these Trump people are for the same kind of class warfare that the leftists are for. However, they want the class warfare to just be right within America. They're promoting only the right of American employees against American employers, whereas the Democrats, they're against all employers all over the world. They don't differentiate. You know, anybody who is an employer, anyone who can afford to employ anybody else is by that very fact guilty of something, something horrible. You know, you're successful enough to hire somebody else. You must be bad. That's the leftist. Now here, what they want to do is, you know, these Trumpists, they want to hogtie American employers, make them use only American steel and hire only American employees and everything else. And they're supposed to accept this, these restrictions on their exercise of their rights because they're patriotic. They want to make America great, too. They should feel beholden. And they don't realize that this is exactly, completely in contradiction to anything that Americanism has ever stood for. Why? Because Americanism is based on the merits and the rights of the individual. And we don't differentiate in our founding philosophy. Locke didn't say, oh, well, the only people that should have rights are people in your country. True, the Constitution may grant certain privileges to citizens. Citizens could have less screening at the border when they're coming in than people who are non-citizens, right? But if the government is truly going to keep somebody out, it's got to be on the basis of that principle of individual rights. We have to acknowledge that every human being has rights. They are inalienable. They're not self-evident 
I think that we've demonstrated that in the over a couple hundred years of U.S. history. Uh, they're not self-evident. They're being eroded all the time, but they are inalienable. They need to be defended properly. And the idea that you can, in the name of America first, deny rights of some Americans, the employers, and at the same time, other human beings. These are human beings who just want to live their lives and support their lives. What right do we have? Now, one thing we couldn't talk about on that show are all of the caveats, right? What I would do in addition to having this much more open immigration policy, not completely what everyone calls open immigration, would still have screening, like I said, with reference to that principle. But the other things that would come along with this is I would allow employers here to discriminate. I would take away all anti-discrimination laws. Let the racists and the sexists and the scumbags be racist, sexist, and scumbags. Let them do it. But let's have the market free and let the market show that those people who are not racist and sexist and scumbags are the ones who are going to succeed in a free market. So we take away those things. Um, What would happen, I mean, maybe a lot of us would choose not to hire, for example, Muslims. We'd be worried, right, about, and you've seen this, there were Muslim employees, for instance, in the whole San Bernardino shooting thing, always so nice and everything else, and then suddenly he goes jihad. Um, Maybe you just don't want to take that risk on. You could decide whether or not you wanted to under the rules that I think are ideal. So discrimination would be okay. The other thing is, of course, no welfare benefits. For immigrants, of course, I think we should get rid of the entire welfare state, but having the welfare magnet would be gone as well. So there's some caveats and some things. It, it, immigration is a huge, complex topic, and we could talk about, you know, what would be the transition steps between here to the ideal policy and what would you do? And this is something that Yaron and I discussed at length. If you go and you look in my uh, Block Talk Radio archives and you look for discussion with Yaron Brook on immigration policy, We had a whole show devoted to some of the complexities of this issue, a lot more than you could discuss in that tiny clip. But what's the gist of it? The gist is, uh, in particular, when you're talking about the economy, which is what Hilton was focused on, that you really need to protect our economy from all of these immigrants that are going to do so much damage. There are a plethora of studies out there that show that this is just not the case, Uh, What I heard is, I think it's Alex Naresta, who was representing Cato against Tucker Carlson on the issue of immigration. And he apparently showed Tucker, you know, proved to Tucker that immigration was not this big threat to the economy that everybody says it is. The study that I cited on Hilton's show very briefly is the one that was from June June 2016, a little over a year ago, published by Wharton. So if you Google, if you still want to use Google, Gulag as they call it, uh, Wharton Immigration Study 2016 or something, it'll pop up right away. You'll get to the Wharton website, and they talk about this study that is one of these umbrella studies. It's a summary of a lot of academic studies about the effect of immigration on the U.S. economy over the past three decades I believe, and they show that the effect on wages is negligible or nothing, and that all of the alarmists about immigration 
have nothing to say. And, you know, you could say that it, to the extent that there is a negative effect of immigration on the economy right now, it's not truly because of the immigrants. It's because of government intervention in other ways in the economy. It's the welfare state. It's different sorts of regulations and other things that come about that could make immigration a pull on our economy. You know, the fact that we have to give them a free education and all this. I, I want government out of schools entirely, right? All of this could not be discussed on Hilton's show. People would not be coming here for welfare, for education for their kids or anything else because they wouldn't be getting those things free in a proper society, free, you know, at, at the expense of taxpayers. So that's the, the immigration scare monster that people have been talking about on Twitter, mostly as a, as a result of, of that discussion. And, also, and why is that discussion happening? Because they're thinking of you know, restricting immigration further under Trump. But then what's the next big scary thing that we have to worry about? The government climate change report. I've linked in the program notes to a New York Times piece that I posted the other day. The headline was this, scientists fear Trump will dismiss blunt climate report. And what they end up not saying in that headline is that the climate change report that's just been put out and that the New York Times is talking about is a product of government scientists, right? So you could translate this. You could say scientists fear that Trump is going to dismiss this report. And actually they put blunt in there. It was government climate report. The original iteration of this headline was exactly, oh, just climate, dismiss climate change report. I think there was government in there at some point. But the whole point is, is that anybody who is just a normal person will realize that if Trump dismisses this climate report, it's all about politics because the report itself is all about politics. There are some funny new wiggle words that have been introduced in the New York Times reporting of this and probably also in the report itself. Those of you who are familiar with Rand's novel of Atlas Shrugged, you could read this piece, which is a summary of all the horrible stuff that could happen if we don't drastically reduce our consumption of fossil fuels this moment and live a life of misery, right? We have to do that. Forget your air conditioning that's keeping you cool. Forget everything else. You need to live in utter misery so that you maybe can reduce the rate at which the global temperature is increasing by just a tiny hair, right? Um, all sorts of disasters could happen if you don't do this. If you look at the language that they use in this reporting here, and, and I think a lot of the language is echoing the language of the report itself, it sounds so similar, eerily similar to the language in Atlas Shrugged that the State Science Institute was using to describe the dangers posed by Reardon Metal. So let me scroll through this and see. Okay, here, here's an example. Uh, the report says significant advances have been made linking human influence to individual extreme weather events since the last national climate assessment was produced in 2014. Still, it notes crucial uncertainties remain. Okay, so they're hedging their bets, right? You know, there's some crucial uncertainties. Then they say, it cites the European heat wave of 2003 and the record heat in Australia in 2013 as specific episodes where, quote, 
relatively strong evidence, end quote, showed that a man-made factor contributed to the extreme weather. Now, listen to that language, right? If, if you just are scanning this and you're a person who's likely to get scared or alarmed by every news story that you read that tells you of an impending disaster, if you just look at that unthinkingly, like, oh, there's relatively strong you know, evidence that there's a contribution to extreme weather, um, what does relatively strong mean? Relative to what? You're not saying that it's probably true that there's a contribution. So that's one thing just to unpack from this. And then the other thing to unpack is, to what extent did it contribute? How much are you saying that it contributes? That doesn't say, there's nothing here about that. So that's just a little example. There's another, there's another thing about, um, you know, relatively small contribution in one place. And they say a medium likelihood of something else, right? What in the world is a medium likelihood of something? I mean, you know, more likely than not, medium likelihood doesn't necessarily even mean more likely than not. It could just mean equally likely or unlikely. Equally likely or unlikely, why in the world are they in the business of recommending some sort of policy change on it? And then listen to this. This is the clincher, right? You know, supposedly, oh, it's your government. Okay, it's, they're not making policy recommendations. So this is the New York Times saying how the study doesn't make any policy recommendations. Here, here it goes, quote, the study does not make policy recommendations, but it notes that stabilizing the global mean temperature increase to 2 degrees Celsius, what scientists have referred to as the guardrail beyond which changes become catastrophic, doing that will require significant reductions in global levels of carbon dioxide, end quote, meaning global reductions, significant global reductions in the consumption of fossil fuels. That's what they mean because carbon dioxide is a byproduct of fossil fuel consumption. No policy recommendations, but things are going to be catastrophic if we don't do this. <laughs> Disaster is going to happen. Um, I submit that even if you just look at the language of the summary, you're going to question their conclusions this is also a government study, and there's been significant debunking of similarly produced and generated government reports in the past. Don't be alarmed about climate change, and if Trump dismisses it, then it's just politics. That's really all it's about. It's not any real you know, application of a rational faculty on, on Trump's part either. He's not acting on principle. As far as I know, he's acting like he's always acting in response to the squeakiest wheel. And the squeakiest wheel right now from the one that he wants to pay attention to is his so-called base, the people who he thinks are going to reelect him in the next election. Those are the people that he finds himself listening to. Those are the people that Lewandowski were telling him about when we were talking about that last week. He is doing what he thinks the squeakiest wheel wants him to do. That's the way that I see it. It would happen to benefit us if he makes sure that he does withdraw from the Paris Agreement and all that kind of stuff. New York Times is considering, you know, excuse me, is continuing sounding the alarm. The next link that I give you in the in the program notes, again, the program notes are at don'tletitgo.com. Check them out whenever you want. Uh, the next one in the program notes is climate report could force Trump to choose between science and his base. 
science and his base. Because, of course, the science is clear, right? Human beings and our consumption of fossil fuels, fuels, you know, living our lives, enjoying our lives, we are massive contributors to climate change that's going to give you catastrophic consequences. Uh, You may ask me, you say, Amy, you're not a scientist, right? I'm not a scientist. Maybe some of this is true. Maybe I should worry about this. I'll ask you to look at one thing, and that is the track record of the people who have been alarmists about this over the last decade or two. There have been predictions made by Al Gore and others that have not come true, predictions of totally alarming, horrible things. New York Times does its best to point out, oh, there's a rise in sea level here and there's this there. There maybe have been some changes, and and the way that I look at it is I say, yeah, maybe human beings are contributing to some extent, to this climate change by our consumption of fossil fuels. This is what Alex Epstein, as far as I understand, also acknowledges. But our contribution, A, isn't as significant as a lot of these scientists like to imply or maybe even believe. I don't know if they believe it. And then, B, we, if we you know, reduce and, and uh, drastically reduce our consumption of fossil fuels, we are going to make our environment, the environment that we human beings live in, much less pleasant, much less hospitable to human life than if we drastically reduce and therefore achieve maybe some tiny little reduction in the amount of warming out there. What is the answer? Apply human reason to the problem. And why don't we, for instance, use more nuclear? Nuclear is a lot cleaner. It doesn't give off this carbon dioxide and everything else. And yet what has government done around the world? Government has restricted the ability to use nuclear power. I think France is the only one that's done a significant amount of, you know, uh, taking advantage of the benefits of nuclear power. Let's do more of that or, again, take advantage of other technologies, not solar. Solar was a boondoggle. As far as I know, wind is also a boondoggle. It kills a lot of cute birds. Freedom Breeze says, maybe our CO2 contribution is helpful. As far as I know, the biggest contribution to the warming is what happens with the sun, not us. Not us. So climate change alarmism, I don't buy it. I don't think you should buy it. I don't think you should be worried about it. The track record of these folks is abysmal. And if you just read the language of the report and you read it critically, you'll see that they are recommending drastic changes in lifestyle that, as even on their own terms, won't necessarily make much difference at all. Which means, as far as I can tell, they are promoting sacrifice for the sake of promoting sacrifice. Just like the people who want to keep immigrants out, right? A lot of scare tactics out there. And then finally, we have Korea. And I saved Korea for last in part because I don't know enough to give you, you know, kind of really an expert opinion on on North Korea. I tried to get on today's show Jean-Luc Espezza, who's spoken to us before about his impressions of North Korea. He seems to think it's still quite a bit of a joke to think that it's a, a serious problem What could be a problem for some people is that Trump is turning his attention to North Korea. Maybe some things that Trump does could put us more at risk because he's shooting off his mouth without really thinking. New York Times is saying that some of the inflammatory language that Trump is using 
is unprecedented, that he didn't consult with his advisors before using some of this inflammatory language. All of that is disturbing. I think the Trump's approach to the problem and Trump's approach and what it says for our long-term safety and foreign policy issues says more about, you know, something that we need to worry about than the specific example of North Korea. That's my impression, that you need to worry about what's going on inside Trump's head and what comes out of his mouth as a result than we necessarily have to do about North Korea itself. North Korea hopefully has a sense of self-preservation that belies the lunatic ravings of its dictator. That's my hope. But I put two articles there for you to look at. And next week, I'm scheduled to have uh, Jean-Luc on the show. So we'll talk more in depth next week. There's a New York Times piece there in the program notes, answers to four crucial questions about North Korea. The one threat that they seem to be making and wanting to be believed with respect to is a threat to Guam, the territory of Guam. Maybe there's something that they could do with that soon. They're on the verge of making another test and everything else. What is going to happen? Are they going to have some sense of self-preservation? Or are they using this, as Gianluca has said in the past, really as a bargaining chip that they want us to lift sanctions, they want us to continue aid, et cetera? The thing that I found laughable is they have in here, and they have a link. I didn't even go click the link. They said the North Korean economy is doing surprisingly well. Now, maybe their standard for what surprisingly well is is quite low. But they say merchants and entrepreneurs thriving under the protection of the ruling party are encouraging a building boom in Pyongyang. And there are more cars in the capital than ever before. Now, what would I say if I look at that? Okay, if it's under the protection of the ruling party, i.e. because of the application of government force, the granting of special monopolies and all this, if you're thriving under that, you are in a bubble that's going to burst eventually. I don't know how it's going to burst. I can't predict such things. But you're in a bubble that's going to burst. So this idea that you can say, oh, yeah, the economy's doing so well when it's a totalitarian regime, total government force, you're being permitted to engage in certain transactions this second. And then as soon as the whim of the dictator goes in a different direction, the government gun will be pointed at you and you won't be able to do business anymore. You're going to call that thriving? It's not thriving. You know, New York Times being able to talk about such things as thriving shows. They don't understand that socialism and communism, totalitarianism is evil, top to bottom, through and through, no matter what. And you can't take out of context, oh, look at this one little segment of the economy that's thriving right now for this second. So ridiculous. Stuart in the chat room is recommending a book. There's a book by a North Korean refugee. He says it's called In Order to Live by Yanmi Park. Okay. Um, Ken says, more cars than ever before. He says, if you've seen photos of the barren highways, six new cars would validate that claim. And, you know, again, what is the standard? What is their standard for doing surprisingly well? What's the expectation against which they're measuring? They don't say exactly what it is, but you're supposed to be impressed. And moreover, you are supposed to be worried, right? The New York Times wants you worried. They want you scared about North Korea. And they want you scared 
about the loose cannon that is Donald Trump. And yeah, he is. He's a bit of a loose cannon. But I mean, we could talk about what is a valid strategy. You know, he's a pragmatist. Trump is a pragmatist, but he might know something about dealing with, excuse my French assholes, um, how to talk to them. Maybe he does know something that we don't know about this. You know, they've been throwing this rhetoric. Maybe he's throwing the rhetoric back. Does he know something we don't know in that regard? But the fact that he did not consult his aides in any way, if that's true, New York Times is telling us lots of leaks, lots of leaks of that administration. Um, It's worrying. It's worrying if he's not consulting anybody to get advice. I mean, hey, if I don't consult anybody about what I say on my show and then I go out there and I say some outrageous things, very little damage is done. If President of the United States goes out there on Twitter shooting off his mouth about somebody who has a nuclear warhead and can hit United States, there are consequences, right? There are consequences. Stewart is saying that the author of the book that he cited in order to live was an illegal alien who snuck from North Korea to from North Korea to China. Chinese government is hostile to illegal aliens. It deports them back. Wow. Scariness. I do have a call that I think I'm going to go ahead and grab here. If you want to call in 760-888-5817 is the number at which to do so. I'm going to grab this now. Hopefully. Okay, here we go. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, this is Tom. Hi, Tom. How are you? Fine. And you? I'm doing pretty well. You can tell I'm kind of buzzing with energy here. Yeah, okay. You ask if anything can be done. And yes, it can. It's very easy. All you have to do is eliminate all these fools that are saying the United States is a democracy and get them to point out that the United States system of government is constitutionalism, which includes individual rights, which democracy does not do. Yeah, and I mean, as, as, far, as far as I can tell, as far as far as I can tell, Hilton, you know, to whom I was speaking on Sunday, just believes in mob rule, right? Yeah. And you know, mob mob rule but that's and it, well, it is it's democratic, exactly. So, what do you what do you mean by eliminate? Because you use the word eliminate, it's kind of a hostile sounding word. I didn't like it. Well, it should be hostile. These people. Well, you go back to what 1781. And Emmanuel Kant's uh, critique. How about, of how about, how about educate? How about educate? I don't like eliminate. Educate. No, no, uh, no. People don't need education. They simply how about need outshine. A means can we, can of we, can we out, can we outshine the people who are proponents of the idea that we live in a democracy, you, you that our like country it. is about mob rule? Outshine mm-hmm. them. I don't, I don't like eliminate. Yeah. Well, sorry, but anyway, uh, it's like you were talking about with uh, pragmatism satisfying all uh, demands that of course is the democratic and egalitarian right sure so of course okay so democ- democracy is mob rule i had a, a book translated from french by the guy who was uh, at the time in the 1800s regarded as the leading uh, uh theorist of democracy and according to what he did, and of course, you can all say according to what Immanuel Kant said about politics, Obama never did anything in violation of the principle of democracy. 
And if you um, don't like it, well, I can't. I mean, ar- arguably he did, you know, I mean, but it, it's hard to tell exactly what a, you know, set majority of Americans would do. The, the voter participation is down, and then we have this electoral college thing going on, and then there's voter fraud and stuff. So we don't know exactly what pure, you know, pure democracy would yield today. I can, you know, suggest uh, that what whatever pure democracy would yield, it would be pretty scary. I'm pretty sure that Obama did some things in contrast, you know, in contradiction to what the majority of Americans want. Obamacare was one of them, right? Right now, there are a lot of people who want to keep whatever they think they're getting under Obamacare. There's some people who are under delusions that there are aspects of Obamacare that are good for them and, and you know, in the long run even. Little do they know that it's destroying medical care. But at the beginning, at the beginning, the majority of Americans were against it, and the Democratic Party led by Barack Obama shoved it down our throats. So, no, I think he did. Uh, but, you know, in terms of democracy, I'm not going to translate a book and all this stuff. All i got to see is Socrates being ordered to drink the hemlock because of the well, theory of democracy, you know, the idea that the majority can vote and that somehow you are obligated to accept the will of the majority. And, and I'm saying I'm, I'm against Socrates drinking the hemlock every day of the week. Yes. That's, okay. that's all I need. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, it, the, the fact that the majority says anything about anything doesn't make it right. Yes, well, we ha- we check, have to have arguments based on reason, and we have to we have to have a government that runs on principle, not on pragmatism, not on majority rule, not on squeakiest wheel gets the grease. Because that's all we've had going, and you know we do. We've got the swamp, like Hilton complains, but Hilton doesn't want to drain the swamp any more than anybody else does. He's all happy to do those infrastructure projects. Infrastructure projects are just going to perpetuate and proliferate the the swamp. Uh, thank, thanks, Tom, for your call. I'm going to go ahead and, and go now. I, I definitely get the idea that we need to educate. We don't need to eliminate. I, I'd like to outshine. I'd like to outshine those people who would have us believe that the country that we live in is or is properly a democracy, that our country is about mob rule. Stuart in the chat room is giving us another example. In Athens, he says, Anaxagoras said that the stars were objects in the sky and were not gods. And he said that a mob called this blasphemous and voted to punish him. Yeah. I mean, that's all you need. The, the fact that the majority votes for something does not make it right. And in fact, the majority often votes for horrible and unjust things we need if we're going to have government again i'm a proponent of government i think government constrained properly is a necessary good but if you're going to do it you better the hell constrain it by that principle of of individual rights and yes i agree there's a huge education project out there we have to remind people that we're in a republic not a democracy and we need to remind people more of the ideas on which the republic was based and that this principle of individual rights, rights are not self-evident, that they're based on human nature. Someone had asked on Twitter, is it natural rights that you're promoting? And if you think about Rand's theory, which I believe is right, it's not that the rights are exactly natural. It's not as if human nature automatically writes itself into laws for the governing of the conduct of human beings. 
we need to, as human beings, recognize human nature and draw conclusions on the basis of human nature about what we need to do if we're going to live in this world and live peacefully with our fellow man. And that's what rights are. Rights are a product of that thinking, asking that question based on human nature. What sort of rules should we write so that human life is possible on earth? That's what rights are. And and that's not purely natural. By natural is often inferred, you know, that it's just automatically rules can be deduced without any sort of thinking or inference or induction. And Rand smartly, I think, rejected that. There's, there's There's more thinking, there's more inductions that need to be made even after you observe what human nature is. And that's what makes the question about you know, government, on what principle should it be limited? How can it best be limited to that principle? We've got our three branches and checks and balances and things to be, you know, things seem to be really messed up. Can we get it right? This is not easy stuff on how to exactly get it right. What we do know is if you are trying to have government take actions on the basis of some other principle, something other than rights, like protecting the economy, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree if you believe in Americanism, if you believe in Americanism. If you don't, I guess anything goes, right? Luca in the chat room says, here in Switzerland, we have a confederation of states very similar to the USA, but it's labeled either a democracy or a republic. Yeah. Ballot initiatives and anything else. Yeah, I mean, have ballot initiatives to handle certain questions, but in the background has always got to be the premise that any law can be checked against the standard of a constitution. And that constitution needs to embody unambiguously, clearly, consistently throughout the principle of individual rights. Our constitution doesn't happen to do that. And that might be what we could call the error theory as to how we got where we are. I'm realizing that I'm talking a lot and I need to go back to the program notes because I do want to talk a little bit about gulag as people are calling it, I highly recommend that you watch um, Jordan Peterson's interview with James Damore. James Damore is the guy who wrote the infamous Google memo. And as I understand, the Google memo talked about two things. It talked about Google taking actions that were illegal in order to increase diversity there And he also talked about why, according to his own understanding, it would be wrong to do this. And he talked about some actual gender differences that exist between men and women that might explain why you don't have as many women in certain types of positions in the tech field and everything else. Uh, What I really like from Peterson in that clip, and thanks, Luca, for sending that clip along. What I really like from Peterson in there is Peterson says, okay, you talked about you know, your understanding of the science as it exists, talking about the gender differences. And Peterson framed one aspect of the gender differences in a, a really fun way. It's, you know, it's a little summary. It's a catchphrase summary, but I liked it. It was that the science seems to show that women are attracted to interesting people and that men are attracted to interesting things. Now, these are generalizations, right? So sometimes women are attracted to interesting things and sometimes men are attracted to interesting people. But on average, women seem to be more drawn to interesting people 
and men seem to be more drawn to interesting things. And this is, you know, men are from Mars, women from Venus, one of the aspects, right? And, and what Peterson says is that this can be traced to increased exposure to testosterone in utero. And, you know, there's scientific explanations for some of these gender differences. Nonetheless, even though he talked about what his view was, and it seems to be in line with what Damore was talking about in the memo, he said, look, this is the science. It could be wrong. You could be wrong about this, but all you know what you're doing here is you're explaining your best understanding. The fact that all of this science exists doesn't mean that women can't perform in these jobs in the workplace. It means that women might have different sorts of challenges in trying to perform in the job. We might have certain advantages in performing in some of these jobs too. Maybe we need to learn to embrace these differences and exploit the benefits and hazards of being a woman in this sort of workplace. Why not do that? What we do know is we need to have men not behave like scumbags in these workplaces, which sometimes they do. Sometimes women behave as scumbags to other women in these types of environments. I've heard stories like this too. We need to not be sexists in the, and sometimes there is some of this going on in these environments, but why not acknowledge differences if they actually exist? Why pretend that these differences don't exist. I don't know. But what Peterson said, he says, okay, look, you know, you're talking about your understanding of the science and to the best of your knowledge and everything else and why the science goes against what Google is doing beside the fact that I guess Damore thought that a lot of what Google was doing, it was secretive and illegal and everything else. Um, maybe you're wrong, but it's, it's a conversation that we need to have. Maybe you're wrong about the science, but at least – um, you know, Peterson's conclusion was that Damore wasn't explaining this in some sort of offensive way, um, that it should be the basis for a conversation, not the basis for a firing. Now, that's Peterson's judgment, and this is a judgment from sort of a moral perspective. If Google wants to have a successful workplace that, you know, brings into the conversation, all sorts of differences of opinion and ideology and stuff, which would probably benefit Google, right? Google is such a purveyor of information to everybody around the world. Why not have on staff representatives of all different sorts of points of view? And as long as people are, you know, again, expressing their point of view in a respectful way, why not allow that to happen? Why fire this guy? That's Peterson's view. But as you and I know, okay, here's Google. Google is an employer, a private employer. It has the right to do that. It's not like he they violated Demore's right. Demore doesn't have the right to keep his job. You know, in fact, they were talking a few weeks ago about implanting chips, um, you know, chips, microchips in employees. And I guess the microchips would just contain like the logon information for cash registers or something. I don't know. No GPS stuff, nothing really concerning in terms of privacy, but still it's kind of invasive to have a microchip stuck in your body. Um, still, I think employers have the right to demand that employees consent to that as a condition of their employment. And the employee has the right to say, no, I'm going to work someplace else that doesn't want to stick a microchip into my body. 
same here. You know, Google, they have the right to fire this guy. But if this guy, and he came across as just straightforward and reasonable and wanting to start a conversation and that he was concerned about the policies that Google had there on the ground, have the conversation. Let the women or any other minority group who's offended on the Google staff, let them have at him in a respectful way show their arguments and why it's troublesome the thing that he, the conversation that he's bringing up i have a sort of response to the anti-diversity memo at google that demore authored and it's from ceo i think it's the ceo of youtube right yeah ceo of youtube got a little bit of sound in my hair ears here susan wojcicki's is that how you pronounce her last name? I'm not exactly sure. Oh, let me. Oh, gosh. I'm getting stuff in my ear. Sorry, one sec. Okay, now let me think. So she talks about after having read the news about this memo and everything else, her own daughter asked her this question, Mom, is it true that there are biological reasons why there are fewer women in tech and leadership? That's the question that this woman, the CEO of YouTube, had to field from her daughter. And she talks about how conflicted she is about this. Um, She says, the question has weighed heavily on me throughout my career in technology. She says, though I've been lucky to work at a company where I've received a lot of support by leaders by like Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Eric Schmidt, Jonathan Rosenberg, uh, mentors like Bill Campbell. She says her experience in the tech industry has shown her just how pervasive the question is. She says, time and again, she's faced slights that come with the question. Quoting directly from her, she says, I've had my abilities and commitment to my job question. I've been left out of key industry events and social gatherings. I've had meetings with external leaders where they primarily address the more junior male colleagues. I've had comments frequently interrupted and my ideas ignored. Hmm, I had that on Sunday. Uh, Until they were rephrased by men. No matter how often this all happened, it still hurt. She's saying that there is mistreatment. Now, none of that is the biological basis, right? The mistreatment isn't necessarily the biological basis. There could be some aspects of the biological basis on display that initially started some of the mistreatment, and then it just snowballed out of control. Why, Again, why can't people just look and see what the best science says, acknowledge either the differences or the possibility of differences, and say, given that, how do we capitalize on the strengths of women and help women act within this work environment? We all have free will, right? We've got free will. We can act in a work environment against whatever's going on. And this is true not just because you've got some biological thing. There's all sorts of other stuff that you might have to overcome in a particular work environment as well. So um, the, the the questions are, are not easy. Now, what, this woman says, she said, uh, she says that, you know, she thought about all of her history and stuff. And she says she looked at her daughter and answered, answered simply, no, it's not true. That's what she said. She told her daughter, no, it's not true. Now, I don't think that's smart. Um, I don't think I would do that if that was my daughter asking that question. I wouldn't say, no, it's not true that there's no biological basis. I think I would say something like, there may be a biological basis, but 
the biological basis is not an absolute hindrance to performing very well in these environments and that there are some men in these environments and maybe some women too who have treated how have contributed to the mistreatment of women in the environment and that is actually and you tell your you know your daughter you want her to succeed and go into whatever field that she finds is the most interesting and fun for her right you want you want your daughter to want to do this you'd say that the bigger obstacle for you is the mistreatment by some of these people but you shouldn't let either of those things whether there's any kind of minor biological thing going on or whether there's these jerks of the world don't let either of those stop you i wouldn't say to my daughter no it's not true when there is evidence of this oh god i am out of time everybody go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out the rest of the program notes i'll have to you know i'll defer some of these stories to next week check out the jezebels today at 3 p.m pacific time 6 p.m eastern time i've got a link they're going to have some new music on a streaming station called triple j so i put the link there you can check it out i will talk to you guys next week again 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific on Wednesday. And as I said, September will start three days a week. Take care. Thanks for joining in the chat room. Talk to you next week.